Well, everybody's slowly trickling in and Whitfield's outside handing out all the handouts. So uh, if you don't get one, well, you could find somebody who has one and ask them if they'll share and sit next to them. <laughs> or maybe he'll come back in here with the extras. I don't know what he's going to do. Last week we started into Deuteronomy chapter 30, and this week we're continuing into it. So this is part two, and it could turn into a part three sort of thing, but uh, I hope it'll just be a part two, but we'll see. So I'm going to, we're going to be starting into elaborating on some of the questions from last week a little bit, which is part of the handout. I gave you that, so it'll be a, a resource to you, and it allows me to work through that a little bit more quickly. It's something that you've seen before. It's something I've taught in this class in the past, but thought perhaps re-presenting it might help bring some clarity. One of the, the convictions that I... I have as a, as a pastor is that theology should be done within the local church, which you can get the, the challenge that that is in the information age when somebody thinks they can do that separate from the local church and just through an online search, and they do a lot of their theology a, a, apart from the church, and it ends up you know, causing a, a division more than unity. But the place where we do theology is the local church, and certainly we can benefit from online resources. In fact, I, I recommend a couple on the handout that I give you. And when it comes to, to doing theology, it's been said that one of the, the hardest bridges to cross in theology is that of semantics which is dealing with words and their definitions. Because you have one person, they use a word with a different definition. Another person uses the same word, but they have a different definition. But they're trying to talk to each other, and the other person's hearing their definition from the other person when the other person is wanting them to hear their definition. That's, you know, an, an example of that might be the, how the word grace is used within the Roman Catholic religion versus Protestant Christianity. You know, for the Roman Catholic, when they say grace, uh, they might be willing to say that we're saved by grace alone. Well, I've had them say that, and we're thinking, well, you're not supposed to say that. That's like a Reformation sort of thing. You're not supposed to believe that. But in their mind, what they're thinking is uh, they believe in the ability to earn righteousness for themselves. They think that's what grace means. Grace means the ability to earn righteousness for yourself. Whereas, you know, the Protestant guy said, you can't, you can't believe my phrase. <laughs> uh, but he's thinking, you know, what grace means is undeserved favor that's based on Christ's righteousness. So each person, when it comes to a theological discussion, they have to define their own terms, but they also have to understand how another person is defining their terms. And this is especially true when it comes to the study of the Christian's relationship to the law. And in this study, maybe it'd be a comfort to you to know that uh, theologians 
think that this is the most complex study in all of theology. <laughs> so if you feel like this is kind of hard to get and when one question is answered, I have three more questions. Well, that's been a normal experience throughout uh, church history. Uh, but while it might be complex and it might have some difficulty in understanding the Christian's relationship to the law, it is a worthy pursuit. And true, it is a difficult pursuit, but it's not too difficult. Uh, you can understand these things. Uh, we could say it can be done and it must be done. The reason it must be done is because God has revealed things to us on this for us to know, for us to rejoice in, for us to live in. They're not things for us to say, well, they're too hard, so I'm just going to do something else. Uh, it's something that's been revealed, not concealed. And it's been entrusted to us within the church to rightly handle these things, and they're a blessing to us when we understand them. And you know, a lot of times the things that you feel the most blessed by in life are the things that took the most effort from you. They're the things that you worked the hardest to apprehend. So with all of that said, I'm going to pray for us and start into elaborating on the answers to questions from last week with hopes of getting to Deuteronomy 30 and coming to a conclusion on that in Romans chapter 10. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you have given us revelation in Scripture, revelation to reveal who you are as our God, to reveal to us the way of salvation, to reveal to us the way, the truth, and the life, who is Christ himself, that he is not hidden from us, that he is not hard to know, but you have made the way of salvation knowable. And out of your love for us, you have given us your law, which is your instruction. And there is much of this that is uh, complex, but it's not too difficult to understand. So I pray that you would give clarity. Let me pray this morning that you would not just give us uh, apprehension of ideas, but that you would excite our hearts to love you more, to not overlook the magnificent grace that is revealed in Deuteronomy 30 and that you are the resolver of all tensions in this creation. You're the, the resolution to the tension to the command to love you but not having a heart to love you and that you give the new heart what you require. We thank you for this reality. Pray that we would not overlook the great delight that there is and that grace that is revealed and the discussion of seeking to many to understand so many things this day. We pray that above all else that we would have a, a greater amazement of the glories of Christ as we would end this lesson today that your character and your will would be revealed to us and we would love you more. Amen. As you've experienced as we've gone through Deuteronomy classes, uh, I, I am applying the book of De Deuteronomy to you. I'm applying it to our modern day. And you've seen that 
It applies to things like uh, prizing life, thinking about purity, that it has things to do with how you think about the clothes you wear. It deals with how you think about your diet and how you're perceived by other people. Uh, we've learned things about governance of nations. We've learned things about military and ethics. And we haven't talked about it like it's just some old, old story from long, long ago for some people who aren't around anymore. But it's something for us today. I think you've probably seen in every class that it's these things that we're reading out of Deuteronomy, which was Israel's constitution and not ours, it's being applied to you. But how am I doing that? You know, why am I doing that and how am I doing that? Well, to look under the hood a little bit, you're like, well, how did, how did the car just get us from here to there? Yeah, how did you do that? Well, what I'm doing is I'm kind of opening up the hood a little bit here to explain to you uh, how the, the mechanics of these things work. And you might remember, and if you don't remember, you look in the little diagram that I gave you on the handout. Of, it has the little bubble with God's law at the top and uh, God's law being the universal, eternal standard for all, all of time, but it was administered in a particular way to Israel through Moses, but it's administered in another way through Christ, which we're under the law of Christ and not under Moses, but it can be confusing to think through these sort of statements in Scripture where it says you're not, you're not under the law. And you're like, well, the word law just in your diagram gets used in at least three different ways. And it's like, well, what are, what are you talking about? And it takes some thinking to keep up with what we're talking about. And if you're kind of looking at that uh, diagram there, I want to give an illustration that I've given in the past that probably helps bring some more clarity. You can think about this idea of having a 9 p.m. bedtime while you're living in your parents' house. Now, there's this universal principle, which is you need sleep, all right? But while you're under the administration of your parents' house, there's this specific application that 9 p.m. is when that happens, all right? But there comes a day when you don't live uh, under their roof you live on your own. Yeah, I'm not going to draw a house. I don't know what I'm going to draw. But uh, we'll just draw you. <laughs> but now outside of your parents' house, you see you have this general principle that you need sleep in order to function and to live. But under the specific you know, administration of your parents, there were, the application was 9 p.m., but then when you move out, you don't have to go to bed at 9 p.m. Maybe you go to bed at 10.30 sometimes or 11, but the, the law in your parents' house is no longer binding. You're not under it, but not being under your, your parents' you know, specific law, does that mean that you're without any sort of universal standard? No, it's just applied differently. So... You can also think about this. Well, what, what happens if you don't go to, to bed at 9 p.m.? Do you think, my parents failed? And what if one of your friends comes along and is like, you're not going to bed at 9 p.m. anymore? 
Like, what are you thinking? I was like, your parents are just a total failure. <laughs> well, the, the specific application you see under, under your parents doesn't equal the universal principle. They're two different things. You have the specific application of 9 p.m., but even if it doesn't happen that way later in history, you still have this universal principle of needing to sleep. But you could have this other instance where some person comes along and say, well, if you don't go to bed at 9 p.m., you're an antinomian. You're just living like, you're, you're just against the law. Well, no, you're, no, you're not. Not because you don't go back and think, well, uh, I guess you're right. My parents failed and I need to go back under their administration to be able to have some principles in life. Well, no, you don't have to go back to that. There's still this universal principle of uh, you need sleep, but just it's practiced different. So you're not without any universal principle in life. You're not without guidance. Though you're not under this, this law, you're still under law. You can see how that connects in, I know the, the illustration analogy breaks down. Don't overthink it. I'm just trying to make this one point with it. I'm not trying to make two points, just one. <laughs> uh, there's this passage that I kind of gave you a little block diagram of it, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 21. And I want you to see how Paul's using this word law in a few different ways there. You can see the, the underlined section in that block diagram, you have these two categories of people. There's those who are under the law. The other category, those who are without the law. Who are those people? Okay, who are the people who are under the law? Yeah, that's the Jews that he's talking about. It's, you know, it's law with a capital L, and he's talking specifically about the, the law of Moses, which we're going to have and just to make a quick sort of diagram here, you have God's law, that's the Mosaic administration, and then the one that's under Christ. So the, the Jews were under the law of Moses. The Gentiles, it just says they were without law. They, they were without this particular instruction that Israel had. They were never part of that covenant, nor would, would they ever be. But Paul also had a, a view of himself, which I put in bold. So if you look at that, it's like, well, how did uh, Paul view himself within this paradigm? He says, though not being myself under the law, he says, I'm not under this. And he's a Jew, by the way. And he says, I'm not under that. But you look later in the next uh, bold Statement, he says, though not being without the law of God, this thing up here, but under the law of Christ. So he says, nobody is ever without the law of God in history, from Adam to Moses, Moses to Christ, and for all eternity. This never goes away, but it has a particular expression here, which you know, is kind of relating here in this 9 p.m. bedtime sort of idea. But because people don't go back and live uh, under that Mosaic covenant, it doesn't mean, well, it failed. Well, the fact that it failed is how it succeeds. You have a question back there? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. You see, you grow up in your parents' house to learn things that you need to know so that you can live outside of that house. But does that mean that you just, you never have to ever think back on the instruction that they gave you ever again in life? <laughs> or, or there's still just nothing to learn from them. It's like, no, you can go back and still think on that instruction and learn from it, but you're not, it doesn't put you back under their roof. You don't have to be under their roof to learn from the things that they taught you. What you're seeing that even as we're going through Deuteronomy, you don't have to be under the Mosaic Covenant to learn from it. It still has instruction for us today. It still has examples for us today, but the applications are different because we're, we're under Christ and his administration. So Paul's personal view, as we talked about, he's, he's not under the law here, but he's not without the law, but he's under Christ. Yeah, I know that maybe you know, the bubbles aren't the best graphic or whatever, but th this, this is universal. It's transcendent. It's uh, eternal, speaking about the law of God here. So you could see Paul saw himself as one who, this is little observations on your little handout if you're wondering where I'm at. Uh, Paul, Paul could be one who's he's not under the Mosaic law while at the same time not being without the law of God. So that brings us to a conclusion here that the, the, the law of Moses does not equal the law of God because you can't, you can't say that you're not under one but you're, you're under the other and say that they're the same thing at the same time. So the law of God does not equal the law of Moses. Instead, the, the law of God is a superordinate category or it's like the big category that everything else fits under but it's expressed at you know, two different administrations, economies. You know, that's, you know, depending on your uh, Bible translation, you, you'll have something like that, you know, economy or administration to, to talk about these sort of realities. So the law of Moses, as we know, it's in the Old Testament. The law of Christ, it's in the New Testament. But the purpose of the law of Moses was to fail. But it didn't fail in the sense that it points you to Christ. We talked about this last week in uh, the double pass play that we saw the 49ers do. I don't know why I'm talking about football. but <laughs> Anyways, the, the point in the double pass play is that for the guy to just stand there behind the scrimmage line and think we have achieved the touchdown while he's just holding the ball. He's supposed to pass the ball to somebody else. The other guy makes the touchdown. And so you don't say, well, that guy failed because he passed the ball and he didn't make the touchdown. It's like, no, he, he succeeded by failing to make the touchdown. That wasn't his purpose. And it's the same thing. You know, the, the law of Moses wasn't to me. It's not the goal itself. Righteousness it isn't in the, in the law here, but it's to point out that you don't have that righteousness. You have to go to the touchdown maker who is Christ. The righteousness is in him. Uh, 
So the law of Moses and the law of Christ, you could think of it like this. There's specific applications of the general application of the law of God, which is why you see in both Testaments, you know, what's the fulfillment of the law? In one word, love. Sometimes you see it's to love God and to love neighbor, or sometimes it's to love God or it's to love neighbor. But the way that that looked for Israel in, in their time in history looks different for those who are Christians under the law of Christ, which is, you know, why, why I can be wearing some mixed fabrics right now and uh, I, I, I could, we could have bacon. You know, we don't, there were some specific instructions about purity laws that were being taught to Israel then, but uh, we can still learn that concept of, of purity from that point of Scripture, right? But we don't, have, we don't have to carry out those specific applications. But we get the exact same purity instruction. It's just lived out differently in the age under Christ. And you can think about even the, the uniqueness of each of these laws. The law of Moses was given to Israel and only Israel in the Old Testament. And you know, just as a reminder, it's the only, the only covenant in all of Scripture that isn't everlasting. It's never called to be everlasting. It is later called obsolete. I'll come back to that idea. But the law of Christ, it's given to Christians, which makes it's this one new man. The new man is Christ, but it's Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. It's not just to one nation, it's to all nations. We still have this larger category that never ever goes away, which is the law of God, which has always been on every man's conscience. Uh, Even Cain, when he slew Abel, before the Ten Commandments were ever written on stone, they were, they were already written on his heart. You know, God didn't have to say, you know what, Cain, I'm sorry, I never, I never told anybody you shall not murder. Therefore, I can't justly prosecute you. Well, no, God had built his law into creation and into his image bearers. And you get that from Romans 2, 11 through 14, so... The law of God is on every man's conscience. It's transcendent. It's the universal standard of righteousness which every man falls short of and is accountable to. So how does a Christian in the New Covenant understand the Mosaic Covenant, which Jesus has made obsolete? I'm taking that word from Hebrews 8.13. It's the last verse in that chapter, but it talks about when Christ became a high priest which he goes through the same sort of ordination elements as the Levitical priest, but he brings in a new priesthood. But in doing so, he cancels the old priesthood and the old covenant. And so he ratifies a new covenant in his blood. And Romans, or not Romans, Hebrews 8.13, it says, making the first, first one obsolete. Now we actually turn there and you look at that. Hebrews 8.13 which you might, you know, just uh, recalling the context of Hebrews is saying, you know, Christ's priesthood isn't according to the Levitical lineage, but it's according to Melchizedek. And there's a lot to say about that, but 
we would never finish this class today. But look there at the end of Hebrews 8, verse 13. It says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, this is where I got this idea of talking about planned obsolescence. Now, God had always planned for this covenant to become obsolete, but when it becomes obsolete, it doesn't mean that the law of God is obsolete. You know, that, that was one of the confusions of the Jews because, well, one, they thought righteousness is right here. So if you say that, that we're not under this, then, then we can't be righteous. Nobody will be righteous, and the, the whole world's just going to be totally immoral. And you got to remember that this was a, you know, a Jewish misunderstanding that's often being corrected throughout Scripture, that they're perceiving it as the law is transformative. You know, the way that you, even with the Judaizers, heresy and Galatians, they're like, fine, you want to add in Jesus to this, that's fine. But if you really want to be like a super Christ follower, you need stuff from the law of Moses because that's the thing that transforms you. That's where you get the blessings. But what Galatians teaches and said, the thing that actually transforms you is Christ, not the law. The, where you get the blessings is not the law, it's Christ. So the Mosaic Covenant, as we talked about, it, it had a built-in planned obsolescence. You know, Moses wasn't intended to hold the ball behind the, the scrimmage line the entire time. He was always meant to, to pass it. But the New Covenant is the permanent solution which the Mosaic law points to go to. That's actually the purpose. That's what it teaches. It doesn't uh, teach that you, know, you, you can do this and that you can get righteousness through this. But instead it points out, you can't do this. <laughs> you can't get righteousness through you. Instead it's teaching you that you're, you're unrighteous and that the ball needs to be passed to something that can do this, which is what we came to last week and you know, the resolution of this tension of God saying, you have to circumcise your heart. And then he says, and I haven't given you one, so you can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, throw the ball. Somebody throw the ball. <laughs> well, God, God has to do it. But this is where he resolves it in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He says, I will give you a new heart to love me. That's, that's the resolution. So the, the law, again, it, uh, I'm totally not going to finish today. But uh, the, the law was always meant to, to point to Christ, to take people to Christ. It, it, the word law does not mean rules. If you misunderstand it as rules, you won't understand anything I, I've been teaching to you <laughs> at all. But if you understand, it's instruction. But what is the instruction? The instruction is God is holy, you're sinful, and you need a God-man mediator. Go to him. That's it. Now, how do we then, we think about, you know, the Christian's relationship to the law, and this, again, this is complex, this could go 30 different directions, but to give some general guidance on that, ultimately, we want, we want to, to view the law exactly how the biblical authors did. Uh, we don't get our theology from somewhere else and then say, 
bring our theology into the text. We get our theology from the text. So we say, well, how did Moses understand the law? How did Paul understand Moses? Which is actually exactly the same. Uh, they're both men who gave us text that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, what we're getting is you know, the mind of God and you know, Paul isn't, isn't at odds with Moses because God isn't at odds with anything in his own mind. So how do we think about these things? Well, one, one helpful text where you see Paul thinking back on the Old Testament is 1 Corinthians 10. I gave you that as a bullet point. And he's talking about the things that happened with Israel in the wilderness. And he says, these things happened as examples for us. So one of the things we look at, it's examples for us. He says, and they were written for our instruction, which is what the word law means. He says, it is what the word means. So the laws and, ex or within the laws, so that I'm law with a capital L. That's how I'm using it right now, talking about the Mosaic law. The, the instructions and examples that are there still remain. Uh, those, those things aren't obsolete. What is obsolete is that priesthood, that administration. But it still instructs us, which is why we as Christians can have a Deuteronomy class. It still has examples for us. I think when we talked about idolatry, when we had application on thinking through contentment, we can see a people who weren't content with uh, the Lord being their shepherd. You know, like a, we see a bad example and it's a, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't desire a idolatry like they do. Don't be discontent like they were. Don't be grumblers like they were. But today, I know very much in the, whatever you want to call it, the, the wider evangelical sphere, which we're aware of through having the, the internet, there's been much discussion on, well, how, does, how do we think of God's law, the Mosaic law, and these sort of things in the civil realm? Uh, because we, we want to see uh, Christ being honored. Uh, we want to see life being upheld. We, do, we don't want to see things like abortion, right? Uh, we don't want to see things like transgenderism. Uh, we don't want to see things like a misunderstanding of how we think about our nation's borders or what a military is or what it's supposed to do. Uh, we, we want our political leaders to understand that they have a standard and a ministry which God has given them, which they're to, to uphold. And so you're thinking of, think about these sort of concepts, nations, political leaders, military things like this, where do we have examples of those in the scripture that we can learn from? They're back here. They're, they're in Deuteronomy. So when we look back at it, we don't you know, then say, well, our whole nation has to be under the Mosaic law. Well, no. But we say there is an example in scripture of a nation and how God governed them that we could, we could learn from. So when we go back to that, which you'd see, you know, historically you might think of a guy like uh, John Calvin. You know, he meditated very much on Deuteronomy and what, what does it look like to, 
to learn from these laws that were given to Israel and to, to apply that wisdom to a, a culture today, which we recognize it doesn't apply in exactly the same way because you're not under that administration. So you, know, you don't go around executing people for not keeping the Sabbath, which nobody's under, but there are principles still to learn from that in which a, a government should never be against God's people gathering. So today that would be you know, an application that we would think through for ourselves, not that uh, government isn't to enforce doctrine and practice in the church. They can't say, well, if you Christians uh, don't keep your, your own doctrine, we will kill you. <laughs> they, they can't do that. But that also means they have no jurisdiction here. They, they can't tell us if we can meet. They can't tell us you know, what to do with our chairs or uh, how we dress. I mean, kind of, you can't, you can't come here without clothes. That is breaking a law still as far as I know. I know you'd never do that. That's just like one of those weird dreams you have. And you're like, did that really happen? <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> well, that was really distracting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so all of that to, to say we, we don't just take you know, the, the First Testament or the Older Testament and just throw it out like there's nothing to learn from it. Uh, I think you're going to see we're going to have... Uh, presentation of the family protective ministries in our, our main service, which, you know, that, that's a ministry that, that helps us to, to know how, how can we advocate for righteousness in our culture? How can we be a, an influence on uh, our county, our state, perhaps the United States? There, there's things that we can do and want to do. Uh, we're, we're not you know, when we say that we're not under the law, we're not just saying, well, all we do is we just throw all of that out and we just get in a holy huddle and uh, hope for the rapture and don't witness to anybody except each other. It's like, well, no, not at all. There's this love of neighbor that when we come in with this righteous instruction from God that we're able to evangelize them. But we have to recognize when we're bringing God's law to bear you know, on the culture in which we live, we're not telling them how they, they can become righteous. We're prosecuting them for their lack of righteousness. And the purpose is, what the law's purpose is, is to point them to Christ ultimately. One of the texts that was brought up in relationship to this discussion comes from 1 Timothy, which I don't have, this isn't in your handout, we're moving on from the handout, and I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to move, move to a, a text that says that the law is good. And it's saying, by the way, we're, you're, in the, you're in your New Testament, and you have a New Testament author who's telling you the, the law is good. And he's talking specifically about the law of Moses, so, you know, Paul has a view on this. Uh, he has an intent in writing this text, and we want to know what is the author's intent. Because we, we show up to reading this text with all sorts of presuppositions, pre-understandings, theological 
persuasions perhaps, but we don't want to read them into this text. You want to understand what is the point that he was trying to make, and if he's not making the, the conclusion that you've come to about this topic, well, uh, he doesn't get corrected. You need to get corrected. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So let's uh, start this in verse 3 to get a bit of context into this. As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God which is by faith. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. For some, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, the, the two prominent views on, you know, interpreting this section is, well, one is that people would see, see this as teaching that the law is a restrainer of sin, that it restrains sin in a society. They're saying that's, that's the good thing that the law does is what they would argue. Uh, another view is that the good thing that the law does is that it it wasn't for the righteous, but it's for the unrighteous. It points out their unrighteousness. It teaches them what their state is before God. In other words, the good thing that it does is it teaches them that God is holy, you're sinful, and you need a God-man mediator. It points them to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Which I'm kind of tipping my hand on what I'm persuaded of here, but... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, that view that the, the law restrains sin. You know, think about that. Well, ha having laws, having uh, laws on the law books, uh, we know that laws teach values to people. And we've seen when you change a, a value of the, the punishment you get for robbing a store in San Francisco, you know, you lower that and people say, it doesn't have that much value. And even, even if I do get a $1,000 fine, I can get way more than $1,000 of stuff out of Walgreens. Well, you see how that affects the society, but if you, you ratchet that up and the fine is greater, the imprisonment is, is something like that, the punishment's higher, you have less people doing that. It's teaching values to them, but does it restrain sin? No, because man's still sinning in his heart. It hasn't changed that, that guy's 
heart, it doesn't stop them from sinning at the level of their desires. They're still going to find ways to sin. So you could say, you know, we recognize in the world that it's logical that, you know, having laws, it has a pragmatic effect. You know, nobody, you shouldn't, you know, deny that if you are, you know, awake and your brain works. But, uh, when you, it comes to this you know, argument for the law restraining, I don't think that's Paul's intent here in this text. He's not arguing for that here. He's not saying, you know, there's some guys that are teaching some things falsely that don't understand the law, the commands to, to love. And the, the good thing about the, the law is that it, uh, it restrains people from sinning. You know, I don't see that sort of concept in this text, but you do see that sort of concept not only in creation, but you see that in like Romans 13:4 when it's talking about human government and the ministry of the sword. And it says of you know civil government, which God instituted, it says, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So you could think about it like this. You know, the, the, the law doesn't restrain. Law enforcement restrains. Now you, can, you, know, you can put on the front of your, your Walgreens or your CVS pharmacy, you shall not steal. But that, that law can't come out and put handcuffs on anybody. <laughs> you need a law enforcer to, to restrain other people which the law enforcer is this minister of God, which is civil government. You know, uh, concepts don't restrain people. Like laws don't restrain people. Swords do. <laughs> uh, handcuffs do. And I think it's important to, to make that sort of distinction, uh, it, which is, a, you know, maybe it's, a, it's an important parenting lesson, lesson too. You know, just barking orders at, at your kids doesn't make them... Uh, more righteous. It, it, it doesn't work at the family level or at the societal level. It, it's not, it doesn't function that way ever. So the second view, as we talked about, which is, I'm going to call it Paul's view. It's the, the, the law is not made for a righteous person, which what he's talking, you can see he's dealing with Jewish false teachers here. You get that from the context because they're all concerned about these Old Testament genealogies, which to them it wasn't, you know, Old Testament, it was just the Bible, uh, which is actually a pretty profound thought to, that you don't want to forget is that the New Testament is just Old Testament preaching. He's saying here, you know, the law is not made for a righteous person, somebody who thinks that they're righteous. It's not for that person, because Jesus didn't come for those people. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. But he says, but the, the law is for those who are lawless and rebellious. It's like, well, in what way is it for them? Well, it's for them to instruct them. It's for them to, to teach them that you're bad and you need a Savior. It's to teach them that they are lawless and that they are rebellious so the law, the law does what the word means. It instructs. It teaches sinful men that they're sinners against a holy God and they deserve to die. 
Well, I, I could uh, expound on that, that passage a bit, a bit more, but I don't know how, how much of it would be helpful. But you see, you see within it, there are these guys, they, they misunderstood the law, but they, they, they wanted to teach other people about it, but they had no idea what they were talking about. And God's giving them a correction because they're thinking the good thing that the law does is that it, it transforms me. It teaches me how to be righteous. And then when I'm righteous, society will become more righteous because I'll bring my righteousness into society and call them to the law whereby they can make themselves righteous and we will establish the kingdom of God on earth. That was the Jewish understanding of the law. But Paul is correct. And, well, okay, if you get... If Paul is telling them the law doesn't do that, then they're going to be thinking, well, then the law is bad. The law doesn't make me righteous. It doesn't make society righteous. If it doesn't establish the kingdom of God, then it's bad, and what's the point? And so Paul is telling them, the law is good. <laughs> Don't misunderstand me. But, but the good thing that it does is that it instructs you that God is holy, that you're a sinner, and that you need a God-man mediator. The law was never a means of self-righteousness. It's always been a means for self-condemnation, which is why when you read through 2 Corinthians 3, he doesn't, he doesn't call the, the law a ministry of life. He calls it it's a ministry of death. And what does it do? The letter kills. That's what it does. People say, well, but can't it do more than that? Like, can't it, like, fix America? <laughs> No, but it can kill it. It can tell them that they're dead in their sin and that, they, and that they need Christ. That's the purpose of the law, but the heart, the heart of man always wants the law to do something that it can't. So, but God, I, I, I want the law to make people righteous. I want it to make me right. I want it to make my children righteous. I, I want it to make people in Washington righteous. I want it to make people in California righteous. Like, well, it doesn't do that. It wasn't designed to do that, but it does point out their unrighteousness and their need for the glorious gospel of God who is our righteousness. Points that you need him, ultimately. So you can think about, you know, when we talk about these sort of like, uh, well, I'll just start horizontal and vertical elements. When we talk about the Mosaic Covenant, it's, it's very horizontal in its righteousness, but it's not vertical. So you can live by the instruction that's there externally and things go better in a society. Like if you, you uphold marriage between one man and one woman, goes well for society. You uphold that it's bad to murder people. If you, murder, if you take a life, you give a life. It makes things better for people, but it doesn't do this vertical thing. It doesn't establish a right standing with God. It doesn't establish his kingdom on earth. It just merely does this external thing, but in the midst of even the sort of external blessing that, that, that it brings, it doesn't resolve the internal heart issue itself. It has a weakness built into it as it's discussed, but what makes it weak is the flesh because you can't do it. The, the flesh can't keep the law, which I'm alluding, in, you know, into Romans 8 when, when Paul says, what the law could not do, weak as it was by the flesh, Christ did it. 
Isn't that amazing? He did it. I mean, I don't know if you <laughs> feel the tensions all of this as we've gone through Deuteronomy into chapter 30. This is a long book. <laughs> and when you're reading through it from the beginning, you're like, you're, God, you're telling them to circumcise their hearts, and then you tell them they can't do it. Like, that's a problem. But the problem's not with the law. The problem's with the flesh. It's with man. The weakness isn't in the law. It's in the people who received it. But the law is teaching them that. But you also have, you know, this other dynamic of from the nation of Israel that's to be a blessing to, to all other nations, but they're unrighteous and they're cursed. God has already told them, you will be cursed. You will go into exile. It's like, well, how, how can you be a blessing to the nation? How can the Abrahamic covenant be fulfilled of this one nation being a blessing to, to all the nations if they're cursed and in exile? Like, God, how, do, how does this get resolved? You have all of these tensions and, and more building up into that, which God then... You could either say in Deuteronomy 30 that you have the, the new covenant mentioned for the first time, or at least the precursor to it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, says, I'm going to give you a new heart. That's how it works. Salvation isn't by your works. Salvation is by grace alone. It's all me. It has to be. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is not of the law. It has to be by grace alone. God does it all by himself. But when he does that, you have a new relationship with him and to his law and to your sin. <laughs> it, it all changes because now you love him. Now you, you want to follow in his instruction. And not only do you want to, you have the ability to do it because he's given you a new heart with new desires, new abilities, and you have a new relationship to your sin, which is you hate it. You hate, you hate all sin. You want everybody to come to know, to, to, to know Christ. And you want him to be the one who's ruling and reigning over everything in earth, which you, you will have your heart's desire. Uh, he, he is ruling and reigning right now. There, there has never been a time in history where God hasn't been reigning and ruling, nor will there, there ever be. But right now we live in this tension in this fallen creation in which we haven't seen it fully realized and that we're, you're not in the new heavens and the new earth. You are not in the millennial kingdom. <laughs> it, it, when you are, it's going to be better than this, I promise. <laughs> you know, read the passages about it. Like there, there's still some tensions during, you know, that, that thousand year period, which is what millennial means, by the way. It means 1,000, but it, it's, it's not the last thing, but it is, a, it is a progression towards where everything is going in creation, which is what God promised to all creation well, in what we call the Noahic covenant. Everything will enter into God's rest. That's the goal. Everything's on course. That's how it ends, and that's what our hope is. Like, you're going to have it. I mean, think about all these things that you, you long for. You long to be free from your sin. You're going to get it. You, you long to be free from a failing body, disease, your, your health going away. You're going to get it. Uh, you, you long to be 
free from the injustice that's going on in the, the world and in wicked leaders, you're going to get it. You're going to get the desire of your heart if that desire is the Lord himself. You're going to get it. Another element of the law that I think is, is helpful to, to bring up here comes from Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. If you'll turn there with me. I think this is another verse that, that tells us about, you know, what is the good thing that the law does. Here's what the Word of God says, Romans 5.20. Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That's the good thing that the law does. Which when you read that, you think, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Increasing transgression. So that's what it does. That's what, that's what your Bible says. It says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But then here's some gospel truth. He says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see that connection? The law points you to Christ. Righteousness isn't in the law. The increase of transgression is in the law, but not the increase of righteousness. Righteousness is in Christ. It points you to him. Life isn't in the law. Life is Christ and in Christ, which, you know, the Jews misunderstood the law as thinking, no, the law is the means by which righteousness would increase. But God designed the law so that transgression would increase. So it doesn't establish righteousness, but instead it points out the lack of it and the need to go to Jesus, the righteous. But you can think about the in, at the end of uh, Romans chapter 7, right, verses 20 to the end of the chapter, you know, how does it increase transgression? Now, here's what Paul says. He says, but if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one working it out, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle, this is like another word for law, it's translated principle here. He says, I find in me the principle that in me evil is present. In me, who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. You remember what he's talking about here in, in, in the context is that he didn't know what it was to, to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. And he said, I found in myself the increasing of all sorts of covetousness. I didn't know that it was there, but then the instructor came and said, look at the covetousness here and here and here. And it taught him. It taught him righteousness isn't in the law. It teaches him. You're a transgressor, and you're way worse than you think that you are. You deserve to die, but it also points you to you need to go to Christ. He can resolve this. Uh, he's the one who gives the new heart, and he 
is the repairer, the divine physician of this tension that's in your soul, where you have this law of sin, but there's also this law of God, and there's this battle within, what you think, there's this instruction of sin within you. Like, you want to do these things. You Naturally, you know how to sin. You, never, you, you don't have to teach a human being to be selfish. And just look at those little, those little humans when they're born. The only person they think about is themselves. You know, they, they don't sit there and cry in their crib because they want to give you something, right? <laughs> they just want something from you all the time. And their first words are mine and no. <laughs> That's human nature. If you struggle with the receiving, the doctrine of total depravity, just look at these little people <laughs> and how they live their lives. <laughs> so what you see that the, the law does in increasing the transgression, it, it increased Paul's awareness of covetousness, but it also increases accountability. You know, the more you know, the more you're accountable for, and, and the hotter hell's going to be for you if you reject these things that God has given to you. You think about this idea of increased accountability within this analogy you've probably heard, like, you know, if you lie, if you lie to your toddler, what can they do? Nothing. Lie to your wife, maybe you're sleeping on the couch. Lie to the government, you're in prison. You, you lie to the God of the universe when, it, when he says, I made you to represent me as the God of truth and you always tell the truth. And if, and if you even just tell a little white lie, you'll be telling the whole world that I do stuff like that. You're supposed to be my image bearer. You don't live according to your own understanding or what you think is right in your, your own eyes. And you're like, well, God, I really did a, a good thing for that, that woman that didn't look so good in her dress. And she asked, you know, do I look okay? And I just told a little white lie. I said, you look fine. I'm doing good for society. <laughs> You know, there, there's no excuse. You, whatever color modifier you want to put in front of your lies, they're still lies. But the issue is that you've, you've misrepresented the God of creation. He's a God of truth. We're to be people of truth. We're to mirror his character and his will. That's why this is such a big deal. But the law increases your accountability to him. It helps you to understand that. So giving an unbeliever the law... It doesn't lead to righteousness, but instead what it does is it, it increases the trespass. That's what you're doing when you're giving somebody law. Uh, scripture talks about it like this. It says it gives, the law gives knowledge of sin. It shuts the mouth. Or, you know, back in 2 Corinthians 3, we already talked about this. Like, the letter kills. Mosaic covenant kills. It says the spirit gives life. What covenant does that sound like? The Spirit gives life. Yeah, it's the new covenant. So you, you don't find life in the, the Mosaic law. You find death. But you also find that, that what that covenant teaches you is go to the new covenant. And it still does that today. It still does the exact same thing. It's still operative and still does the exact same thing. And that it points you, go to the new covenant. So when you're reading your Bible... You don't just, you know, you don't just stop in Deuteronomy and like, this is it. <laughs> you keep going. It's like, keep going. Go to the new covenant. God's intention is for a, a double pass play to maybe overuse that analogy. <laughs> Which 
doesn't bring us back to Deuteronomy 30 to be able to finish that, but it does set us up to do part three <laughs> next week, which actually teaches all of these exact sort of concepts. But I know, you know, hearing it from some different angles or from different illustrations, it, it, eventually it clicks. You know, I, I remember uh, uh, hearing one guy kept trying, trying to teach somebody a well, presuppositional apologetics that he was trying to explain to him. You know, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He says, you, you have to start with fearing God before you can have God's wisdom. And, and his friend just said, I don't understand that. I mean, isn't it by like showing them like manuscript evidence and stuff about like dinosaur bones and then that leads them to believe in God? And isn't that how? He says, no, it's the fear of the Lord that uh, is the beginning of wisdom. And, and his friend just couldn't conceive of this for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then all of a sudden, his friend comes and he says, I get it. I get it now. I get what, you, what you're saying, that, that the way that somebody comes to, to conversion isn't through, you know, these particular evidences necessarily, but it's by the fear of the Lord. And he's like, well, how would you come to that conclusion? He says, well, it says in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, you know, that happens so much in, in Bible teaching. You know, you hear, it's like the 56th time you hear something. You're like, I get it. You're like, what do you mean you get it? And they tell you something, you're like, I've said that to you 56 times, like, but now I get it. You're like, well, I'm not going to mention that I said it 56 times, but we'll just, I'll just rejoice with those who <laughs> rejoice. <laughs> so uh, I'll close this in, in prayer. I do have uh, some other questions that I got from people that I am going to answer, but they're, they're answered in the, the exposition of Deuteronomy 30. I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going to be preaching at a a Baptist church in Alta, you know, fight the snowstorm and uh, stay up that way and go that that direction. So, but some somebody will be up here <laughs> that hasn't been arranged yet. So don't 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 not show up. <laughs> so in a, in a couple of weeks we'll pick up on Deuteronomy 30 and get into to Romans 10 and shout the hallelujah for the amazing truth that, that comes uh, out of those texts, which all I'm going to tell you is, you know, the Deuteronomy 30, it's still operative. It still does what it does, and that's exactly what Paul tells them in Romans 10. He's like, that Bible passage still means what it means, still does what it does. Don't mean to ruin it for you, but that's what happens. Uh, let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and for the the depth of it and for the joy that we have and we, we get to study these things. We get to have fellowship in these things that we get to work out our theology to, together, to think together. And we thank you that you have given us revelation which we can look at your word together to seek to understand it together. I pray that by your spirit you would illuminate the truth that is there, give us a, a clearer understanding of it, a more faithful application of it. We pray that we would think about these things exactly as you do and as you have revealed to them to us in the scripture which is the mind of Christ, which is the things that you would have us to know. We pray that we would be exhilarated not only by the understanding of things but by in this great relationship that we have with you, this privilege that we have you as our savior and 
instructor and that you've not just left us to ourselves to try to understand or live by these things in our own power, but you're at work in us to give us the uh, ability to understand these things and to live by them. I pray that you would uh, only mature that and grow that in us and in our fellowship. And we give you thanks and pray that you would increase our thankfulness to you. We thank you for your love and pray that our love for you would increase and our love for one another would uh, stir all of us up together in our fellowship to greater love and good works for the sake of your name. Amen.